Welcome to the CRE Podcast, 100% Canadian, 100% commercial real estate. Now, here are your hosts, Aaron Cameron and Adam Pawatic. Welcome to the Commercial Real Estate Podcast powered by First National. I am Adam Quadic and my co-host is Aaron Cameron. Today's show is a little different. We've got Yardy as a sponsor for this episode and we do thank them for that. So joining us from Yardy is Peter Altabelli. He's got an amazing backstory and it's definitely worth listening to, but we already covered that in a previous episode. So please go back and listen to the episode to get Peter's backstory and the Yardy story. It's, it's very interesting stuff. We'll put a link in the show notes, but we're going to talk today about something a little different. We're going to do the top five highlights from the Canadian Apartment Investment Conference. That just took place online, as all conferences now are virtual. But we take the five most interesting points out of it, and we're going to discuss them and go over the concepts and give people who maybe didn't get a chance to attend a, a little flavor for what they missed. But Peter is the Vice President and General Manager of Yardy. We welcome to the show today. Welcome back, Peter. Thanks, Adam. Thanks, Aaron. Good to be back. So as we mentioned for all our listeners who are used to our traditional format, we're not going to get into Peter's backstory today. We're not going to have our after show today either because this is somewhat like an after show for the conference and we don't want to get too many layers deep into after show after after show. But we do have the key five points. Aaron, do you want to start off with number five here? Yeah, sure. Let's start. So number five, we're not going to tease you guys. You have to just stay tuned to listen to the whole show to hear what number one is. So number five is really a shift in preferences in the multi-unit space. And let me preface this before we go to Peter, but it's really just about how there was a large tenant survey that, that we conduct every year as part of the Informa done by Amy Erickson. And thanks to Amy for putting that on. And I think we actually had Amy on a while ago to talk about some of the upcoming results. What we're really seeing is a change in the way that tenants view their needs and desires within the multi-unit space. And, and it's kind of fascinating. You know, Peter, you must have seen the results and what was your take on kind of what the shift kind of looks like? Yeah, you know, I watched it along with everybody else. And it was interesting to see year over year. A couple of things occur is, A, the, the surveys are becoming a little bit more rich, meaning we're getting to more and more people, right? They're getting to interview more people. They're getting more respondents coming out. And I think that gives a lot more value to the data and it gives them a better cross-section. But that being said, I mean, it's interesting to see that they're looking at this and saying amenities are a big deal, right? Let's look at what the amenities are of the property. Let's take a look at what they mean to my living and the way I want to live uh, moving forward. And so the shift between year over year in 2019 versus 2020 was interesting. You know, we're a tech company, our tech background. So for us, it's all about technology, but it was interesting to see that technology didn't hit number one or number two. It was a little bit lower in the rankings. Important, but a little bit lower in the rankings. But, you know, that whole outdoor space, more bedrooms, a little bit more room, they want to make sure that their units are quiet and soundproof, are coming up to the top or or closer to the top in terms of requirements, really goes to quality of living. And it might be because, Aaron, we're in our, you know, we're home all the time now, right? And it's like you're out through the day, you're coming home in the evening, you're home, you know, almost 24-7 with COVID. And that will change people's requirements and will change their needs and what they're expecting out of their homes when they're there. Yeah, one of the things that I thought was really fascinating, and it's really clearly COVID specific, but that was having sort of storage lockers on site. And I imagine a part of that is for sort of parcel delivery, parcel reception, not having to interact with delivery services, not having to interact with concierge. I mean, there's clearly, I mean, this is a conversation we have kind of regularly on this podcast is the implications of COVID. I try very, very hard to keep it minor, right? This is a blip in the scale of history, of course, but it's hard not to project the implications it has going forwards. And I wonder how long lasting the effects of COVID will have on tenants' requirements, tenants' needs. So when you look at this, like I'll give the example, 
So this can change behavior. So yeah, I agree. This is a blip, right? This is a blip in history. We'll get through this, no problem. And there might be a little bit of growing pains along the way, but this could change behavior, right? Look at the parcel delivery. The parcel deliveries are through the roof. They were always active. Online purchasing was always there, but now it has become so much more prevalent. Now I live in a home. So all I do is hear a doorbell ring and the person delivering the parcel is gone. They're not waiting for signatures. They're not waiting to interact with you. They're, they take a they're, picture. they're gone. They're dropping up. They, they take, take a picture, picture. they text it to you, right? Yeah, and they're done. In an apartment building, you know, in high-rise living, this is not a simple thing to accomplish, right? So I pick up my, open my door, I pick up my parcel, and I go, I walk it back in the house. For parcel delivery, I mean, it's a huge need now for high-rise living and apartment living and condo living, where they have to have a system in place and a system that's going to be far more effective for their tenants and also secure for their tenants. So on-site storage is going to be enormous. Once you do get your package delivered to your suite and you open it, what do you do with it? Right? So if it's not something that you're using right away and it needs to be in storage or you're replacing something, you need that on-site storage on a long-term basis. But you also need good parcel delivery technology and services for your tenants moving forward. I don't think this is going to get turned off once there's a vaccine and we're all ready to go back to work and, and society's gone back to normal. I think this is going to be an industry trend. It's going to be a consumer trend that's going to continue. And those who own real estate and, and high-rise living are going to have to make changes or be forced to making changes to how they accept parcels and what their tenants' expectations are of a delivery service at the property level, right? And the security of whatever they're buying. Look at this Christmas. Let's not go too far before Christmas. This Christmas, could you imagine? I mean, if they're already saying Thanksgiving's over, they don't want people meeting, what's going to happen with Halloween, which is the next you know, fun holiday? Well, uh, Christmas is around the corner when package delivery is going to be coming. And I just saw Amazon launching the holiday season with a prime day, whatever that means, October 17th, right? So it's starting. Like, it's coming quick. Yeah, I got the email today on prime day. So package delivery this Christmas, I think, for the managers of rental housing and, and, and apartments is going to be an enormous contention that they have to deal with. It's well, to that point as well, I know that Aaron's on the operations side, so it's probably been a while since he toured an older apartment building, but you know, I'm, I'm frontline sales. And so, you know, I, I do get into these apartment buildings and it's always difficult for some of the older buildings that never contemplated this massive package delivery aspect to their building. They're now trying to, you know, retrofit some area of their property that can handle it. It's just never as well done as it's a brand new building. But I mean, more and more tenants are going to make that not a nice to have, but a must have on their list of, you know, living conditions. So it does put some of the older buildings at a bit of a disadvantage. It does. It does. And I think that I think it's going to be a scramble. It's going to be a scramble on a lot of the existing infrastructure, the existing stock on how they're going to be able to handle this, not just in the short term, because I think they have some big problems in the next several months, but also there's going to be a quantum change in the way consumers purchase. And what are they going to do in the long term for their properties? It's a big challenge for them. And just expanding on that one, we haven't talked about cold storage, which I know is one of those amenities that, that's getting batted around because a lot of people are now ordering their groceries and things like that and want it to be kept cold if they arrive at 9 a.m. and you don't get back from the office, assuming you're in the office until later in the day. And the other thing is just the ingress and egress. I mean, it's one thing to have tenants coming and going, but if you've got a 200-unit building and you have you know however many numbers of deliveries a day, particularly as these delivery services, Amazon in particular, is trying to get like next hour delivery or same day delivery, you've got people coming, dropping off small parcels. They're driving in, driving out, driving in, driving out. Like that, those, there are all these sort of implications that we just, our community, particularly the apartment owners, are still trying to wrap their head around. 
Okay, so that was number five, the shift in preferences in multi-res units as a result of the, the, the tenant survey. Number four on our list, and this is Peter's panel. He spoke in this panel, so I expect some absolute gems out of Peter on this one. But it's technology being a tool for tenants, prospects, operators, and a factor in development. Obviously, this is a you know, perfect panel for Peter to be on, given the, you know, the Yardy connection. But Peter, can you share your thoughts with us? You know, so there's lots to talk about in terms of technology and multifamily and where it is today and where it's going in the future. COVID was a game changer in Canada. It truly was. You know, we thought that this year was going to be incredibly quiet and it was about May 1st. And on May 1st, the phone started ringing and it hasn't stopped in terms of the different technologies. When you're looking at technologies, big in on taking care of your applicants, the market and your tenants. These are the first and foremost items in which the multifamily owners and operators are really looking at. They want to be able to get the right hands and eyes looking on their websites, enticing people to apply, having the right tool sets so they can do a full lead to lease without ever presenting, right? So everything is done electronically. You cannot jeopardize your staff or your potential tenant or resident in this process. And people are uneasy on meeting others right now. So a total electronic solution as it comes to prospecting lead and developing leases or writing leases with full electronic signatures is one way. And the other big thing that we're seeing a little bit faster in the U.S. than in Canada and it's funny, all the technology is being developed here in Canada, but it's being deployed in the U.S., which is tours, self-guided tours. And this is not a virtual tour that you're seeing online with a video. This is integrating the Internet of Things technology into online operations, into your applicant process. So I'm applying, I'm being approved, I'm scheduling an appointment, right, through the Internet. And through that scheduling, I'm sent a code down to my cell phone. I'm doing an ID verification check taking pictures of, say, my license, taking a selfie, comparing the pictures, looking up my verification, making sure the fact that it's real and true, getting a PIN code. I arrive at the property, and the only thing you have to do is let me in, and that can be done remotely. Right? I go up to the unit, I walk in front of the unit, and my PIN code lets me in. All the way along, I'm not seeing anyone. But what's really it's truly creative about all of this is the leasing agent needs to see and needs to know everything that's happening at that time when I'm applying, scheduling, and presenting. The leasing agent is behind that applicant every step of the way and knows exactly what they're doing, right? That's the integration of IoT into operations. When that potential tenant leaves that unit after looking at it, immediately as that door closes, you know, that leasing agent knows. The lock is disabled, the code's disabled, but prior to me coming in, prior to that prospective tenant coming in, the lights are on, the heating is on, or the air conditioning is on, so the climate is set, the lights are set. When that person leaves, the climate is reset, the lights are off, and the motion detectors determine that everyone actually left the unit, that we didn't leave anyone behind. That's the integration of IoT with operations and application processing, right? I leave, I like the place, I could be walking out, and that leasing agent could be on the phone with me immediately whether it's a call or text, however they want to communicate with me. So this is where we're seeing an upside more in the U.S. than in Canada. But I see as this pandemic lingers and goes on longer and longer, I think this industry will have to make that paradigm shift into determining how they want to keep their staff safe, their residents safe, and the people coming into their property safe. And this is a big deal, right? So on the applicant side, lots of work, lots of things to do. On the resident side, resident portals, resident apps, payment apps, are all the big thing now in terms of what people want to see and 
right? I'm not going to bring a check in anymore. I got to give it to somebody to pay my rent. It's all going to be done electronically through portals. And I want options. I'm not just necessarily going to pay you by check or pre-authorized debit. I want to be able to use debit cards or potentially credit cards to pay my outstanding fees. And I want to do it at 2 a.m. in the morning. It's convenient. You know, or I'm on the run someplace and I'm going to send you a text message to pay my rent via text. All these technologies are in place. They work really well. We're seeing now a move to the adoption of those kinds of technologies, right? And it keeps everyone safe. It keeps everyone at a distance and it makes lots of sense. And these are just a few type topics, but this can go on and on in terms of what's going on with technology and multifamily residential real estate. But these are some of the big, big items, uh, guys, that people in the industry are starting to look at in Canada. Okay, I, I want to ask uh, uh, Peter a question. You've been rolling out technology for, for years, and then the usual cycle is, I mean, you know it better than me, but you know, there's an education component to the public, there's slow adoption, you know, it takes a while to fully infiltrate. It could be years before technology is fully integrated into the business community. But as you already alluded to with COVID, there's no time to have a gradual presentation of these technologies. It's more of a shotgun approach of rapid deployment and rapid adoption. So if we look to the silver lining of COVID and technology, how many years of progress are we going to call, you know, are we going to squeeze into 2020? How much are we going to have to leap forward in terms of what would have been a more normal cycle to adopt some of these technologies that you're talking about? You know what? It's a great view. I would say 18 to 24 months is going to be the leapfrog. We're leapfrogging at least a year and a half to two years because of this. And all of this will get moved into six to 10, 12 months latest, right? And I think it's going to be, I mean, we got incredibly busy come May and have been nonstop since that time. If we get into a, a round two of COVID, like the government is saying we're into, and that second wave, I think that that's going to even accelerate technology in this space even faster, quicker. And you'll see it more throughout more companies. I think many companies got caught. They got caught. And, you know, no fault of their own. The world changed on them. And they were running fine. Organizations were fine. Their priorities were fine. Technology is not for everyone. and doesn't need to be everywhere all of the time. But COVID changed it. And when the world changed, many companies couldn't move that fast. And they had to. And now they get forced into that. At least now they're focused and they're making it happen. They're making it happen as people work at home. They're implementing many different technologies to ensure the fact that their staff is working and that they're able to operate. And I think that we're leapfrogging 18 to 24 months because of this in terms of adoption of technology. You know, the interesting part too, Peter, to that point is that it's, there were some that were being progressive and trying to find new solutions. I mean, the landlord that insisted that all tenants must pay with post-dated checks you know, if they've now realized they've got to get with the time, so to speak, as a result of just being forced to, I don't know how many tenants are going to go back and say, okay, you know, it was cool to be able to pay with my text messages, but I really like the nuisance of giving you post-dated checks every year. Like, it's not going to revert back, right? Once you're there, you're there. It's, it's not, it's just going to yeah, keep going forward, you know, right? You're right. But, you know, I think there's going to be a trend. So there's going to be some people that say, I want to give you my check. Here's my check. I'm going to walk it into your office. Here's my 12 checks because it's a nuisance, because it's the way I've always done it, and it is what it is. But, you know, you're 20-something. You don't know how to write a check. I'm you know, almost I, my, there my are 40s. people who are 30-something who don't know how to check, check right? I, I don't know. If you told me I have to write a check for something, I'd have to go to the bank and say, I need checks. Like, I don't know what my checkbook is. I don't have a checkbook. Why would I? Right. And, and I think that's where electronic payments are coming in, right? Because there's a, the whole next generation is like, I, I mean, I've turned to my kids and they, I, I'm writing a check and they say, this doesn't make any sense. I don't understand what you're doing. How could this piece of paper that you signed actually mean money? 
right? Why don't you just e-transfer, right? No one's concerned about the cost of e-transfer. They're just e-transfer. And it does make a lot of sense. And there's that generation that just says, I'm not doing checks. I don't even know what they are, nor do I want to. And I think that that's what you got to prepare for, right? We're all getting older. We all move down that scale. And uh, there are going to be tenants that you have to take care of their checks. And so be it. You take care of them. They're your client. And there's automation around check handling now that allows less handling of checks where you're scanning the checks, it's imaging, it's using OCR, and the check's going into the bank without you walking the check to the bank. So it's, it creates that electronic document from that manual document, and those are very efficient. That's how you're going to handle your post-data checks and checks that walk in the door. But I think in the course of the next three to five years, those will be minimal, and you'll see that most of everything will be all done electronically. Right? And it's all going to be done through my app, through my phone, through the portals, but it'll be all electronic. This is a bit of a tangent, but I have colleagues, younger colleagues for sure, but they don't even carry a wallet anymore, Peter. They just take your yeah. phone around with you and you, t- you bump your phone into things and you get pays for stuff. Tap your right? phone. Absolutely. Absolutely. So it's the way that it's, you know, you, would, we, you and I would say it's the way of the future. And I think I'm probably aging myself. But in other generations, it's not the way of the future. It's the current. And the industry will rise to the occasion and take care of the current and just move forward and also take care of those clients that are not quite there yet. The third item in our top five highlights is the creative and necessary strategies discussed on affordable housing. Obviously, affordable housing, not a new topic, but is still for the probably 50th year in a row, the top discussion point for the, for the major urban centers. Peter's got a little bit of history actually working in this area. So I'm going to ask Peter to comment. You know, affordable housing is just one of those things that will always be with us. And the, the definition of it is going to change over time. What's affordable today wasn't affordable, won't be affordable tomorrow. And if you look back in time, what was affordable 10 years ago versus today, it's significantly different. And the question is, is how does the industry evolve and meet the needs of affordability of their residents? And how do we handle it? You can't just say one solution fits all. It doesn't work. You could talk about building units and raising the inventory of units available. And that obviously hits supply and demand. And that will offer some benefit to the industry and to the market and to individuals trying to rent. But there has to be more of an alignment of what we do in this country. Canada is so diversified. When you look at the differences between the Western Canada, Eastern Canada in the middle, and then you look at the government structures between the feds, the provinces and municipalities, and not everybody's aligned on all of this, right? So you do get a misalignment between, you know, what the federal government's trying to achieve and how the provincial governments are deploying, and then right down to the municipal level, which can get very bureaucratic and slow projects down. You know, when you see new affordable housing go up, you'll get these announcements, and and I do work in both the for-profit world and as well as the non-profit world, and, you know, they'll put a building up, and it's 45-unit, 75-unit building, and they have these enormous announcements happening. And it's fantastic, you know, brand new construction. But when you look at on the social housing side, the size of the wait list and the thousands of people looking for places to live that don't even hit the affordable range that are even below, bringing on 40, 50, 60, 75 units is fantastic, but it really does nothing on reducing those wait lists. When you come up to the affordable level, which says, look, we can't always all afford those high-end rents. There's got to be something that's in the middle that are nice places to live, secure places to live. The market has to be able to address this and government has to be able to align to assist developers to make the numbers work for them, right? And allow them to do what they need to do to bring in new housing stock geared for certain income brackets, geared for certain points of the market so they can be successful. They have an ROI, their buildings will go up. 
they'll be properly financed and that the government is satisfying a need also, which is getting those individuals housed effectively, safely, efficiently in a nice place to live. And I think we need more policy alignment provincially and municipally to allow this to occur. Sometimes municipalities are well-intentioned, but they get in the way and they trip over themselves and slow things down and make it much more difficult for developers to do this, as opposed to not just by policy indicating what has to happen, but by putting that policy in some sort of action so they have the ability to move forward. And again, when we talk about this, you can't just say one city versus another. It's got to be across this whole country. And each city and each municipality is different, and so is each province. So it would be nice to have a little bit more coordination for the industry at those levels. Peter, I'm going to put you on the spot, so I'll apologize in advance. It's um, not a policy per se, but an approach to tackling the challenge of affordability that I've heard that, that for yet I've not heard a good excuse or reason, sorry, why it doesn't work. And that is really giving, as you indicated, Dependent on the level of need of that person's situation or income bracket, they basically get given what is effectively like a license, like an affordability license. It allows them to basically approach any renter, any rental unit and say, okay, you can charge me market, but I've got this little card that says I only pay 800 bucks and the city tops it up or the province tops it up or the federal government tops it up. Because part of the challenge we always have with affordability is that there are these stigmas around an affordable complex because it, you know, it attracts a certain type of person and no one wants to live there. And this way, if you're really more serving the needs of the individual rather than the community, you can go to a basement apartment or you can go live in a high rise, you can live in a condo that's being rented out for profit. As long as you've got this card, it, it, it basically keeps the unit owner, apartment owner whole, but allows that individual to recognize or, or access the subsidy or rent levels that they need. Have you ever experienced anything like that? Have you ever had discussions or been on panels where that's been discussed? And what are your thoughts about it? Yeah, I like the idea. It needs to be part of the solution. There are a number of countries around the world that have rent subsidies. They all have their own different terminology for it. The U.S. has a very dynamic program in the United States. The U.K. has a program. But, you know, it's a portable rent allowance, right? I'm provided a rental allowance that I can take anywhere I want. It gives me flexibility for my family, for my needs, what I'm looking at to achieve. It allows the person owning that property or the company owning the property to be guaranteed a significant portion of that rent or a piece of that rent and also have a mixed community, right? And you're right. It's an imbiasm, right? Not in my backyard. I don't want this particular complex beside ours. It removes that nimbyism. Governments have an issue with it because it's an open book right? It's an open book. Money flows and flows forever in that open book. And where they can't cap it or they can't frame it and saying it's busted for X number of dollars. And that's the program when the money's out, the money runs out because you just can't do that. I can't house somebody today, guarantee a piece of that rent. And then all of a sudden, some future date that that ends. It can't be done that way. So it has to be sustainable. And a portable rent allowance is a fantastic way to ensure the fact that the buildings are full, they're full, there's a good mixed community, that the owners and managers are guaranteed their rent, and it needs to be part of the solution. It can't be the only piece of it, at least in my world and what I've seen, and I've spoken about this, some panels in the U.S., but it needs to be a big part of the solution. And I think if the government budgeted and that the government's really focus in on what that means for those individuals, those could be life-changing lifestyle individuals. That could be life-changing for some people to have a portable rent allowance and have the flexi to move around with it. You couple that with a new program called choice-based renting capabilities with inside this world, it brings it all together and really allows people to have choice in where they're going to rent and gives them the financial capabilities to meet those choices. And then 
on the receiving side, owners and managers will have the ability to know that they're going to get paid for their rent. And I think it's a fantastic idea and needs to be part of the solution. Well, you've actually framed it that way twice now about it being a part of the solution. We uh, did a podcast episode not too long ago with John Fox of Robbins Appleby. He's a lawyer that specializes in the affordable sector. And that was the, the takeaway message from that episode as well, is that there is no silver bullet. There is no magic solution. It is a whole list of tools in the arsenal that can help combat this problem. What else do you see as big winners in the options available to this city or any city? So there's, I think there's a number of different things. I think you have to raise the housing stock in the affordable range. The cities have to be able to put programs in place that provide the incentives for developers to build, but also for owners of existing stock to renovate, to make their stock available. So they're safe, nice, safe places to live. You have to have the ability to do that with the incentive in mind where you're trying to house a particular group of individuals say, within a particular income bracket. And cities can do this. They have the means, they have the tools. They may need some assistance from multiple levels of government, but I think there's the know-how to do that. That coupled with some sort of portable rent allowance, coupled with what is typically called social housing or rent geared to income housing, which is really the hardest group of people to house because it's the lowest income in our society. With those measures in place, you will have a much more full and much more robust affordable housing plan and affordable housing solution in place than just singleized one type of social housing renting or affordable renting, right? You can't just go with a single purpose solution. It has to have multiple legs, allowing people flexibility and allowing owners and managers of the property to have their properties arranged so they can offer these flexible lower income rents and still getting guaranteed and getting paid. It's um, not rocket science. It just requires effort by both private sector and government. Yeah, it's a full society problem that we all have to participate in to come to a resolution. All layers of government, all individuals, like like you said, public and private. And I will be remiss that we have to move on because this is supposed to be about the top five. We could probably spend the entire episode on affordability, but we'd have to mention, you know, the federal government through CMHC is also offering uh, a whole slew of incentives through their insurance programs. And so there are lots of different organizations throughout the community trying their best to figure out a, a solution to this. Let's move on. Number two, counting down from five to one on the, the highlights of the Canadian Department Investment Conference. Number two, the ability to develop, reposition, and manage based on a profile of a particular tenant. So this is actually related to a gentleman named David Allison, who was a, a podcast guest prior to the CAIC. And really what he was talking about was when you're marketing, he was talking about new units, but it could be specific to existing units as well. When you're marketing new units, having a sense of who your tenant profile should be, you're not just marketing to society at large. You really should have a sense of a focus on who that group. So whether it's retirees, whether it's yuppies, whether it's, you know, that are couples with young kids or whether it's, you know, fresh at a university that are basically young and single and having a sense of what that target market looks like allows you to hone in on how you should market that asset, market your amenities, and ultimately, quite frankly, allows you to charge higher rents. And the reality is people that are whatever subsection or, you know, classification you fall within, people like to live with other people like them, right? They want to know that they're in a building that really is retirees. They want to know they're in a building than it is young couples with larger suites and amenities that are geared specifically towards them rather than just a smorgasbord board trying to hit every single different target market. And that, curious to me, is, is a kind of a shift that we've seen recently. At least the, we're hearing that narrative more and more and more about really gearing your tenant mix to a very specific subsection of the community. So, I mean, Peter, I'll throw it to you. Thoughts and comments about that transition we're seeing in the apartment space. 
Yeah, I think it's the same thing as you. Yeah, I would agree to a certain extent. I think developers understand that already, and they're really building their buildings to satisfy the type of community they want to create. They're not saying one size fits all anymore, right? And a lot, and you could do this on new build, right? You could really focus, spend the time on the planning and the design, understand where that property is and what type of individuals you want to house and you want to create that community within your property. And then from that, the marketing piece kicks in and the marketing piece has to back that development piece on that new build that says, this is what we're really looking for. I think you're going to find that more and more in the trend on new development. I don't think it's going to be, let's build a building and let's house it as quickly as we can with anyone we can get in there. I think that people will be more selective and I moving forward. And I do think the owners and managers will be more selective in terms of not, and I don't mean in terms of I'm going to pick one person over another. I mean, in terms of the type of people we attract to that particular property. And you're right. Is it looking for young families versus you know, a lot of single people who are, you know, in their mid-20s versus younger families that are getting a start in life. The makeup of the building will be different. The makeup of the units will be different. And the services being provided in those units will have some differences. And I think that this is a, I think we're going to see this in Toronto over time. Some of the bigger centers like Toronto, Montreal, Calgary, Vancouver will start to see this kind of build happening over time occur, right? Because if you look at, if you take the Ontario experience where there was no construction for 40 plus years, and now we're now getting into where the developers are now re-looking at this city and spending a lot of time and dollars redeveloping that housing stock, you could see the trend. You could start to see this occur in a lot of the new builds, right? Where they're taking that second look and saying, where do we want to position our property? How is our property going to be unique in the neighborhood that we're building it and how are we targeting it? And then putting marketing campaigns around that to ensure the fact that that's the type of individuals that they're bringing in. Just to add on to that before I throw it back to Adam, you know, the whole concept of programmatic living where you're offering different services as a property manager, owner, if you have a whole slew of different types of people in your building, then the programs you put on just aren't going to be as targeted, aren't going to be as successful, aren't going to foster the type of community you're looking for, aren't going to garner loyalty so you don't have, you know, tons of tenant rollover. There's so many benefits to having a consistent, style of tenant base, right? So if I find it very fascinating that slowly but surely these landlords are figuring this out, it'll be really curious to look back and see what kind of tenant mixes they come up with are the best fit for their buildings. And if retirees are the best fit or you like the young single group, I don't know, like, or maybe maybe a, a mix of retirees and young singles is the best form. It'll be really curious to see how they kind of fit these things together. You know, I think it would too. When you build a community and, and face it, you're in a building, you're building a community, whether or not you admit it or not, you are. And when you build that community, if there's like-minded people in that community, likelihood for problems should be a little bit less, right? Where you have different people in a community where they're not like-minded, I'm sure there's more issues to deal with on a day-to-day basis. Not that there won't be issues on managing people and attitudes and how they live and how they behave, but I just think that it's just one more hurdle that you don't have to deal with. And you also have to look at the neighborhood, you know? Are you going to build a community for retirees in every neighborhood? where you're building properties. There are certain neighborhoods will lend themselves well to that based on what's in that neighborhood. And there may be other neighborhoods in the city that lend itself into, I'm young, getting started. I'm not yuppie. I'm just out of the house, my first apartment, and I'm going to live the life for the next few years. And there are certain neighborhoods that if you look just in Toronto alone, that lend itself to that kind of living, right? And I think any major city has that. The one other piece as well that David Allison talked about was there's the demographic breakdowns that we discussed, obviously, you know, younger versus families versus seniors, but even the type of senior, there's a further breakdown within that. And you mentioned it just a minute ago, Peter, that it makes the building really unique. If that building 
really the marketing really resonates with you. It really can differentiate the building, makes it less of a buy the pound transaction if you're in the market for a new rental. And the interesting bit, of course, was you know David did attach a dollar value to that. So of course, from an investment standpoint, that's where it gets interesting that this highly specialized marketing, it just doesn't fill your building. It fills it up at a slight premium. And you know once you apply a Vancouver cap rate to even a slight increase in income, that's right. uh, going to have an impact on your bottom line. Peter, one of the highlights of the podcast, we've done about 130 episodes now, so there's lots of highlights. But one of my most recent highlights is David actually did a, like a psychoanalysis of Adam during the podcast. Where did you spec out? What did he call you again? What it was? I can't. Yeah, you're like a steady Eddie or something like that. Yeah. Right? Like you have very, yeah. very particular taste. And, he, and he, it was actually quite incredible. And just really quickly, David Allison, his company is called Value Graphics Database. He basically has this, this slew of database. And when you ask sort of eight to 10 questions, you compared the results of the survey, those 10 questions to his database and really carve into that specific individual and who they are, what they like, and then how to market them. And so he did that for Adam. And it was basically somebody that's consistent likes the same thing. I wouldn't say you're predictable, but at the very least, you, you know, he had a way of kind of carving you up and what, how he would you know, target you for marketing. A home body as well was part of it, which uh, turned out to yeah, be true. But that, that's, yeah. a, that's what good marketing is all about, understanding who that consumer is and making it attractive for them and speaking the language that they want to hear. Yeah, I would admit that all of us, even if, if we do think we're impervious to marketing, there's definitely brand affiliation that you feel with certain products. And if you can create that apartment, so you're going to do well. We're now ready for the grand unveiling of our number one spot for the highlights from the Canadian Apartment Investment Conference. And I'm going to tease it a little bit. If you think about your day-to-day life now, what topic comes up more than any other in real estate? So of course, you're talking about a large virtual conference, what topics they come up over and over. It should be obvious if you think about it. The number one is the economy is in for some bumps before we see it stabilize. Going into 2021, the outlook is more grim. Is anybody surprised as that is a number one? You don't say. You don't say. What do you know? Not at all. Hey? (laughs) Benjamin Tall did a great job of presenting presenting this topic about some of the you know the downward pressures on real estate as a whole. I mean, the good news is, of course, that of the various asset classes, apartments definitely near the top of the heap in terms of withstanding this. But there is absolutely pressure in the market. Peter, do you want to speak to some of that presentation? Yeah, you know, I always enjoy watching and listening to Benjamin at the conferences, and now virtually, it's incredibly insightful what you learn and what you pick up. You know, when we talk about internally at Yardi, when we're talking about the economy and where we are today and where we're going, our discussions were always 2021 will be much more difficult than 2020 as it relates to the economy. Many governments have floated a lot of their economies, but can't sustain it moving forward. And I think Benjamin makes that, he brings that to the forefront in a lot of his discussions, which was, you know, Canada had to react. The feds did it. Whether or not you agree or not agree, let's not go to the politics of it all. But at least they did it. They did something that floated the economy. But the outlook is not good for 2021. And, and as an organization, we're looking at that and saying, how do we manage our business to ensure the fact that uh, we're here for all of our clients on the other side of this, which for us won't be a problem, but for a lot of other companies, smaller organizations that will. And for a lot of renters, it's going to be a very difficult thing to be able to hit those rents when all of a sudden it's November, December, January timeframe, and it's a different world, right? So, you know, we might be in well into the second wave of this and who knows what the outcome is. It seems to change day to day. But my take on it was I thought Benjamin did a great job on really framing it and making sure everyone could see the future and see what it looks like. What I liked about a couple of the things that he mentioned was immigration. In 2020, you know, you had a big wave of immigrants, immigrants already in the country. 
in Canada already by the time we shut down the borders. And I thought, and therefore, everyone will need that type of housing. You're not going to get the brain drain happening to the U.S. where, you know, you're talking about almost 100,000 Canadians, young Canadians leaving every year, go to work in the U.S. And I know personally, my daughter left in January of this year, and she's in Silicon Valley working full time, right? So, you know, they graduated and were gone within months down into where the opportunities brought them. And that will now curtail back in 2020. So these individuals, instead of leaving, will have to have some place to live. And then the other surprising element he brought in was the number of Canadians moving back home. They didn't feel secure in the countries that they were in because of COVID or because of political circumstances and moving back home. And those, the borders are open for them. And so what I came from that was it looks like 2020 will still have some dynamic renting happening with inside the, the market with the influx of a portion of, of new immigrants, Canadians staying home and Canadians coming back home. And that will bode well for the industry, even though it's a softer market, but there will still be some absorption by those individuals. Next year, though, when maybe immigration is not going to happen as well as it did or no one will be coming into the country, depending on the status of the virus, I think it's going to be a longer winter and a longer spring for everyone. And I think you're going to see a softening of the market, an increase in vacancies and just a softer rental market for the next probably six to 10 months. I'm hoping by the fourth quarter of 2021, we're pulling out of that mode, assuming that everyone's a lot more healthy and there's a vaccine in place and it's being able to be distributed across uh, countries efficiently and effectively to open up the market. Yeah, you know, I reiterate or agree with the sentiment that listening to Benjamin Tall is always one of the highlights of whatever conference I'm at. And it's almost one of those things where you wish you could record it. Unfortunately, now with this ref club or, or you know, participating on these things virtually, you can go back and kind of hit pause and go, okay, what is he talking about? Like you're going to do supply and demand graphs in your brain, right? What was scary to me, and you kind of touched on a number of these things. I mean, yeah, you're right. The brain drain is a great one. And that's sort of finite because, like you said, 100,000 people. And presumably in 2021, that's true. So there's another, in theory, another 100,000 people that would have gone that are not. The immigration thing, though, I mean, like you said, there's 350,000 immigrants a year, half of which already lived in Canada that become immigrants. So there's whatever that math is, 175,000 people that are already here that are now taking up rental units or housing units, but we're going to have full 350,000 next year because presumably there's way less, or maybe it's not fully 350, but it's going to get exacerbated. And then on top of that, you know, we've spent a whole bunch of money promoting and supporting the economy. We just can't continue to do that, right? Like just serve, serve right. is ending. Serve has ended. I, I lose track now what the particular dates and times are, but how does that impact? That's $2,000 a month in the pocket of, I think the number was like 9 million Canadians or something, right? So I do the math. That is a lot of money going out to help people pay for groceries, pay for rent that they're no longer getting. And then on on top of that, a second wave that may mean restaurants being shut down again, back into more significant quarantine, the economy slowing down even more. And it's just some of the stuff that Benjamin was mentioning were kind of temporary. Or, and you'd mentioned the Canadians abroad coming back. That's a finite number. There, what does he say? I know like 3.3 or 3.9 million Canadians living abroad. Some of them are moving back. But you're not going to keep having that same volume of people coming back. It's a one-time thing. And then they're just no more going to come back. So 2021 is not looking as, I mean, 2021, quite frankly, being honest, is just looking really, really doomy and gloomy right now. I think when you, you know, when we talk internal at our organization at Yardi, and we're talking to our teams around the world, whether it be, you know, Europe or Asia Pac or the U.S. and myself here in Canada, there's a lot of doom and gloom everywhere you are. Uh, there's not a positive outlook anywhere right now because there's just a lot of unknowns and uncertainty within this. But in Canada, for the Canadian experience, most residents, most tenants paid their rent right through this year. It served, you know, whether or not you politically like it or not, it worked. 
uh, put money in the pockets of people, at least in my view, and their bills got paid and rent was one of them. Moving forward and now this is going to change and this change, we really don't know how it's going to affect and if wave two comes in and it's as deep and as dark as people think it's going to be and layoffs start to occur, especially in the service section, if there is sort of rent supplement for people or something that allows them to target their rent target dollars against rent, I think this could have a huge negative impact. And I, I don't want to be all doom and gloom, but I think this could have a huge negative impact in the industry across the country, right? When the government's not looking at saying, should we target money, not just general dollars to individuals, but target money so they're able to stay in one place, stay in their homes and be consistent and not add to the stress of what do I do with this money? And am I going to have to move? Am I going to have to find someplace less expensive to live? And what that means to people. At the same time, they may be losing their job and all the stresses around that and the family stresses that it, it creates. I think having a roof over your head and having that stable takes an enormous stress away. It's not going to be everything, but I think the federal government needs to look at, seriously look at some sort of rent subsidy for those individuals who need it. And it's not going to be forever. It's going to be a one-time thing where they just have to get through the next four, five, six, seven months. And I think that will go a long way to help our industry and to help individuals. And by helping those individuals, you'll help the industry as well. Yeah, you know, that, and that's, you, you kind of, I think we'll finish on that note, Peter. You're absolutely right. And let's hope it's only five, six, seven more months until there's some form of vaccine and we can all start thinking about how to move on and get past this. Peter, thanks for coming on, taking the time to do this. That was a great conversation. Kind of rapid fire, but I think we covered a lot of really interesting points. I'll reiterate for everybody that's listening just so that we can cover them off. It was the top five highlights from the Canadian Apartment Investment Conference. Number five was the shift in preferences for our multi-res tenant survey, sort of the technology tools that tenants and prospects are using. Uh, just the transition we're seeing in technology to you know the way that they view apartments and interact with landlords and operators. Number three was the creative and necessary strategies discussed on affordable housing and just the way that you know affordability is really a full society problem we all need to work together to fix. Number two, ability to develop, reposition, and manage based on the profile of tenants, something that I think is really kind of a fascinating transition in our apartment market. The number one, of course, is the bumps in the economy that I think we could all appreciate. I'd like to thank Yardy for sponsoring the podcast. Of course, thank First National for powering the podcast. Thanks for Informa for putting this on, introducing us to Peter and hosting. And thanks, Peter, again for coming on. That was a great conversation. Yeah, Aaron, Adam, thanks very much. You enjoyed it. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the CRE podcast. The information from this broadcast is not to be relied upon as financial investing, professional accounting, or legal advice. First National Financial LP holds Financial Services Commission of Ontario License Number 10514 and 11252.